Hello there and welcome into another edition of the Intersection Podcast with conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. The Meeting House's continuing coverage of the aftermath of that dramatic decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade included Nicole Hunt from Focus on the Family, who offered a look at the pro-life movement moving forward, including a warning that legal challenges are likely to occur. Her comments are coming up from that conversation. Plus, Jerry Newcomb of Providence Forum and Outreach of D. James Kennedy Ministries provided a look at the influence of Christianity on our nation's foundation relative to a new documentary film. You'll be hearing from that conversation, including his comments relative to the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, while some talk of deconstruction as a process that leads them away from God, Dominic Doan of the ministry Pursuing Faith recommends reconstruction of a person's walk with Christ in an atmosphere of Christian community. You'll be hearing from him ahead. Finally, comments from a mother who gave birth to a child who developed complications leading to special needs which certainly impacted their family as they witnessed God's faithfulness and his gift. Kelly Speck provides some insight into her journey. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Nicole Hunt is an attorney who also serves as Life Issues Analyst for Focus on the Family. While there is much to celebrate about the U.S. Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade, she also notes that there will be challenges along the way in promoting life in states across America with some analysis of the landscape of abortion and the response of the pro-life movement. This is Nicole Hunt now. I am anticipating God doing some incredible things through pro-life pregnancy resource centers and other pro-life ministries. Absolutely. They're doing, they're literally doing life-saving work. And it's not just the baby's life they're saving either. They're saving both the mother and the baby from the tragedy of abortion. Because we know that abortion the pain from abortion, the loss, the regret, that lingers. And women come back and they need post-abortive counseling, which is also another resource that these pregnancy resource centers offer. They offer STD testing. They offer help for a woman who's trying to decide, should I have this baby or should I not? And the truth is, is sometimes they find themselves, you know, as young women who just have an unplanned pregnancy, sometimes they're married women. Sometimes they're women who already have children and they have too many children and their husband wants them to get an abortion. So it's, it's very complicated and we have counselors available. And I say we, I, I'm, I don't work at a crisis pregnancy center, but I am a volunteer with one and I have been for about seven years now. And um, when my kids were really little, I, I was a helpline volunteer. I didn't have time to volunteer during the day because I was a stay-at-home mom, but I could take the hotline at night. And, I would, and so if anyone called the hotline, it would be forwarded to my phone and then I would answer and I would talk to a woman about setting up an appointment. And we had abortion-minded women call in, and we would tell them, well, we don't offer abortions at this location, Well, we would love to talk to you about all your options. And then we'd set up appointments, and hopefully they would come in, and then they would talk to a counselor during the day. But they're doing life-saving work, and it's really important that your listeners be encouraged to get involved in the work of these local pregnancy resource centers because they really are the front lines of the battlefield. I think it's important to remember the message that comes from the pro-abortion industry is make decisions out of fear. You are mm-hmm. not capable. 
you do not have a community to support you. Well, what the pro-life side says is we want to empower you. We want to, we want to create community for you. Come to us. Let us help you get resources. Let us help you provide for yourself and for this child. You can do it and we'll come and we'll help you. It's just, it's such a, a different message. Theirs is a message of death and negativity. Ours is a message of life and empowerment and community. And that is what we're trying to offer to women in need. And that's what they really need. They need to be told, you can do this and we're going to help you. And that's what the pro-life community needs to do now. Now that we have 24 states who are still going to protect abortion, 26 are poised to or, or will be soon protecting life. So in those other 24 states, we still have women seeking out abortions. We still have women making decisions out of fear, and we need to come alongside them and empower them with love and hope and encouragement. As we look from a legal standpoint moving forward, what are some of the the expectations about which we need to be aware? Well, there's definitely going to continue to be a battle. Um, The pro-abortion industry won't just sit down and be quiet. They'll come up with new uh, litigation. In fact, what we've already seen, um, we're seeing loopholes like the abortion by mail pill that the Biden administration has um, endorsed. We're seeing that women are trying, that the abortion industry is trying to exploit that loophole so that women who live in states that are pro-life but can't procure an abortion can, you know, see a doctor out of state and get meds mailed in from out of state. So we're going to probably, and states are already passing laws saying there's no abortion by mail meds permitted in the state. But the question is um, the conflicts that we're going to see between the states over these the states that don't have abortion. May those women may be t- trying to go get see abortion doctors in other states, and the state may end up suing abortionists. So we're going to see that play out. Um, I think another thing we're going to see play out is the left is going to be uh, since they can't make the argument that these laws violate the U.S. Constitution, we're going to see them start making. Start making the arguments that they're a violation of the state privacy clause in their constitution. I think your listeners should know that they need to keep paying attention because just because a a state is pro-life right now doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. As our politicians change, so might our policies. So we need to stay engaged because what just happened is we moved the fight from one battleground, which was the U.S. Supreme Court, to 50 battlegrounds, which is every single state in the nation. So we've got to stay engaged, stay educated, and be a part of turning our culture toward life. Nicole Hunt from Focus on the Family here on The Intersection. She also writes for The Daily Citizen. You can find out more at focusonthefamily.com or thedailycitizen.org. Well, next up, it's Jerry Newcomb. He is Executive Director of Providence Forum and Outreach of D. James Kennedy Ministries and writer, director, and executive producer of a documentary film called The Road to Independence. In our recent conversation, he discussed the content of the film, which describes the influence of Christianity on our nation's founding. Here now is some content from that conversation. This is Jerry Newcomb now. I would want them to know that uh, the Bible played a very pivotal role uh, into the the founding of of the nation, we're, we live at a time, for example, where schools are not allowed, you know, it's almost as if the Bible is like asbestos, to use the words or phrase of one of the Christian attorneys fighting for religious liberty. You know, just recently, the Supreme Court made a decision 
that many liberals, many on the left, do not like this decision, but it basically allows for school vouchers, even of religious schools. Well, all the early, early schools were created by Christians for Christian purposes and so forth. America was founded for religious liberty, was founded by Christians for that very purpose, and yet in the last generation or two or three, you know, we've been losing our freedom as Christians. That's not the way the founders intended it. At least it should be a level playing field uh, you know, when you get down to it. But I think it's important to realize, too, that, that ministers had uh, you know, played an important part in the founding of America. They played an important part in preaching liberty and ideas from the Bible that ultimately produced American independence and produced the you know representative government under God, but ways in which power was under control and power was checked. Because if you have too much power in the hands of too few people, then they will tend to abuse it. And so this is part of the genius of the whole American system, but it gets back to the scriptures. And that's what I want people to know. There is a place for ministers to be bold and to, to speak out. And I'm not talking about getting up and preaching partisan politics or something like that. I'm talking about preaching biblical principles. And if people take those biblical principles and then apply them to how they vote and, and, and they get out and vote so that they're going to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, uh, you know, and under God, the things that are God's, this is important. It's important for Christians to be involved in the political process. Otherwise, we're like salt that has just lost its flavor. It's lost its saltiness, and it's just good for nothing to be trampled on the ground, trampled by, by men, you know, to use a phrase from Jesus Christ. The bottom line is uh, biblical-oriented ministers applying the Word of God help shape and create America. Jerry Newcomb of Providence Forum, an arm of D. James Kennedy Ministries here on The Intersection. Here now is more from that conversation with comments relative to the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade. This is Jerry Newcomb now. Well, on July 4th, what we celebrate is the voice vote approval by the Second Continental Congress of the Declaration of Independence, which says that our rights come from the Creator and first among those enumerated rights is the right to life. That has been the phrase, the moniker of the pro-life forces for almost 50 years, fighting against the tyranny represented in the uh, decision of Roe versus Wade and its companion decision of the same day called Doe v. Bolton. And uh, so basically 62, maybe 63 million unborn babies were killed in abortion legally in America from 1973, January 22nd, 1973, to the present. And now what this uh, new decision, the Dobbs v. Jackson case, what it's done is overturned Roe and basically said this goes back to the states. What Roe did, Roe as a decision, is it nullified any laws related to abortion in all 50 states at the time of the, you know, of that decision in 1973. And uh, so it's been a terrible thing. In, in other words, abortion was imposed on the American public by judicial fiat, as evil and as wrong as abortion is, as a decision, as a Supreme Court decision, it took 
the, the right of we, the people, out of our hands and said that seven unelected judges in, in 1973, it was seven to two, two of them, and one of them that opposed Roe v. Wade said this is an act of raw judicial power. And you can see that in the, uh, the, the Doe v. Bolton, which is the companion decision of Roe v. Wade, again, the same date, January 22, 1973. Well, that act of raw judicial power, by the grace of God, has now been overturned. So now what happens? Well, it depends on what state you live in. Jerry Newcomb here on The Intersection. You can learn more about the Road to Independence and the Ministry of Providence Forum by going to providenceforum.org. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center. That's where you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast and The Meeting House Program. You can also connect to the podcast through the Media Center as well as the Apple Podcast feed. Links are provided there from the homepage. You can also learn more about video content, including recently added content from the 2022 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or you can visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from the Meeting House program can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Search for Faith Radio Podcast when you visit Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and more podcast platforms. Well, continuing now with this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's the founder of the ministry, Pursuing Faith. His name is Dominic Doan. In our recent conversation, he shared principles relative to his book called Your Longing Has a Name, Come Alive to the Story You Were Made For, exploring elements of people reconstructing their faith and flourishing in Christ. He challenges the church to help people discover more about Christ and grow in Him. Here now from that conversation is Dominic Doan. We are witnessing right now nationally uh, kind of a tidal wave of unbelief that's sweeping over the nation. You go online, you, you go on social media, you, you look up hashtag deconstruction, and you come across tens of thousands of videos where people are publicly saying they're leaving the faith or leaving church, leaving Christianity. And according to, to recent polls, uh, Pew, Pew Survey just put out a whole study on this, that they now say that two-thirds of American Christians say they struggle with doubt on a regular basis. And so we're, we're in this fascinating, fascinating moment where, as you mentioned, this is part, I think, of, of the human process. It's part of growth. But we're also witnessing a, a cultural movement uh, of people actively leaving the faith. And so we started a ministry called Pursuing Faith that is really focused on equipping Christians, ministry leaders, and churches to successfully navigate culturally pertinent issues relating to faith, doubt, and apologetics. 
So as you look at that, and that is a very, <laughs> that is a, a large field of endeavor, as we might say. There are, there's a lot to that. And as you say, throughout the culture, there are people that are deconstructing, if you will, or leaving the faith. And so where, where do you begin to address that? What's the, the entry level or the entry point in addressing this with people? Yeah, I think a really good place to begin is in Jude verse 22, where Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. And the word mercy, it's a fascinating word in the original Greek language because it's actually a a word picture of a physician that's mending a broken bone. In other words, our posture towards those who are doubting or deconstructing or wrestling with their faith is not to be one of harsh cynicism Uh, But rather, it's to be one of compassion, of love, of of presence, but also a willingness to engage with their pain, with their uncertainty. Because, you know, so often in the church, we tend to see two different options or two different responses to those who doubt. One is to demonize the doubter. and, And that is where we marginalize those who have questions or we don't give them a safe space to express what they're going through. Uh, Another response that I'm seeing, and this is actually becoming more prevalent, is not to demonize the doubter, but to idolize the doubter. And and you see this perhaps in more progressive churches or liberal churches where doubt is now seen as a a great virtue. And we're called to question everything, which then, of course, leads to the slippery slope of, you know, deconstructing theology, deconstructing, you know, what are the essential tenets of our faith. So what I want to argue for is not so much to demonize the doubter or idolize the doubter, but rather, how do we show mercy to the doubter and walk with them through this process of reconstruction, of understanding and engaging with the thorny questions, and ultimately bringing them back to Jesus? How does the satisfaction that the world promises contrast with the fulfillment that Christ offers? Oh, my. Well, of course, my mind races to John (laughs) chapter 4, where Jesus was with a woman standing at the well who was thirsty. She had longings in her soul, but was trying to fill those voids with things that could never satisfy. And Jesus, of course, says to her, if you drink of these waters, you will thirst again. But if you drink of the waters that I give, you will never thirst again. And, And one of the reasons I wrote the second book, Your Longing Has a Name, is because one of the things I've encountered over the last couple of years, especially, is that when people leave the faith or doubt or deconstruct their faith, at a surface level, it may be because of philosophical reasons or theological reasons or disillusionment with the church, but you start digging beneath those, those questions, and what you actually find is that people's souls are hurting. Mm. Um, the New York Times, they put out an article a few months ago saying that the modern ethos of our age is, is languishing. Dominic Doan here on The Intersection. You can find him online at pursuingfaith.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's the author of the book entitled Hope in the Heartache, The Journey of Grace and Growth with a Special Needs Child. Her name is Kelly Speck, and in our recent conversation, she shared about the challenges of raising a child with special needs and how she and her family have experienced God's faithfulness. From that conversation, this is Kelly Speck now. About 40 days into his NICU stay, we got that diagnosis, which was a really difficult diagnosis to get. Um, you know, we 
we had a, a, a neurologist who had very, very poor bedside manner kind of lay out the facts to us, and his MRI looked really, really bad. He had um, suffered an oxygen depletion on the last day of ECMO, which is a um, life-saving machine that was oxygenating his blood when he when his when his body just couldn't do it on its own and anyway you know we receiving the you know the word cerebral palsy brain damage you know may not walk may not talk may not eat by mouth you know we were just these two barely 30 year old first time parents you know absorbing all the information and so um you know as we all do in a in a you know a journey of grief and acceptance and anger and fear, you know, just all of the feelings began to swirl. And, and really, the, you know, those, it's been years to, for us to fully, um, you know, grasp the magnitude of what his needs would be. Because at first they said, well, work on sitting up, work on sitting up. If a baby can sit up, then the baby can stand. If a baby can stand, then the baby can walk. You know, the brain is amazing. It continues to regenerate. And so, you know, we just, we did everything we could in those early years to just get you know, to, to help Bennett reach his greatest potential. But, you know, early on, I think as a mother, you know, I just had kind of that gut feeling um, that things were going to be a lot different than I could have ever imagined. Um, and, you know, at that point, I had to quit my job immediately. So we went from a two-income family to a family. You know, we uh, were scrambling around to find the best insurance to cover the most physical therapy appointments. You know, it, it, we were truly in a state of survival mode. Um, I would say the first year to two years of Bennett's life, just trying to kind of figure out what equipment do we need. Um, he was able to drink from a bottle, but then immediately he wasn't. He just kind of reached a phase where that was too much. So a feeding tube was placed and all that goes with that. And so, you know, it was just a really, really difficult time, but we didn't even really have time to process what, the magnitude of what was happening to us. Um, and so that's why I think the prayers of friends, family, the body of Christ just literally held us up um, because we were in pure survival mode. And, um, you know, we, we did leave the hospital hearing, you know, parents of kids with disabilities have an 80 to 90% divorce rate, you know, do all you can to, you know, stick together and not drift apart. You know, you, you, we were just pummeled by these statistics and these facts. And it was, it was really more than we could even bear, you know, um, but God in his mercy and grace that he showered on us, um, we did make it through and we did, you know, do, and Bennett was hospitalized, you know, numerous times throughout those early years because his lungs were just so fragile. And anytime he got a little cold, it would blow up into a hospitalization, you know, for a week or two. And so, you know, it's, it wasn't a one-time crisis event. It, it, it's been, you know, now 15 years of hospitalizations and surgeries, but, um, but, you know, we just, we have felt the Lord's presence. Like we quickly realized this is not about us and this really is God's child, you know, and we started receiving letters from people around the world who said, you know, I prayed for Bennett that night. He came off ECMO and I, I prayed for the first time in years and God answered my prayer. And, and I, 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 I've got to know what, who is this, this God, you know, and people have returned to church because of Bennett living. I mean, you know, it's just been so much bigger than um, we could even wrap our brains around at time. And so so we we've rested in um, God's sovereignty in this, you know, and I know people say, why does a good and loving God let bad things happen and blah, blah, blah. And we don't have the answers <laughs> to any of those questions, nor we ever pretend to. But we don't we do know that God is good and he is present. And he is sovereign and he's he's loving. And we have felt his love through some of really our darkest moments. Kelly Speck here on The Intersection. You can learn more at HopeInTheHeartache.com. 
Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming menu at faithradio.org. Through the Meeting House homepage, you can find a link to the Media Center. That's where you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. You can also find links to the podcast, to the Media Center, as well as the Apple Podcast feed. There are links to video content as well. Plus, you can access two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter at Access the Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.